0: My reading is from Romans chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction
1: Well, good morning, uh, Panador. Uh, my name is Mark, I'm one of the pastors here. My family and I just drove in straight from our campsite again this morning. We've done this a couple of times now this summer. So we broke camp at 7 a.m. Uh, and drove straight here about two-and-a-half-hour drive and got here uh, just in time to be with all of you and worship with all of you. So I've mentioned a couple of times as I've greeted some of you that I may still smell like a campfire. One of you I mentioned this to, and you promptly told me no, it's something else that I'm smelling, actually, which might have to do with the fact that this campground was not equipped with showers. So I've been in a river the past couple days, but have not had a bar of soap touch this person in some time. Um, so grace to you and grace for me from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I have the honor and privilege this morning of introducing our speaker. You know him already, but I want to reintroduce him today, um, three years ago now. I sat down with this person and we talked about the possibility of him pursuing eldership here at the church and becoming a pastor uh, here at the church. And so we entered into a process whereby we would examine him and see his fitness for that task. And over the course of the ensuing year, we engaged in that kind of examination and determined at that time, about two years ago now, that it was not the right time for him to move forward with Eldership. He took that news with some surprise, uh, and yet the way he received that decision, I think, verified to us that in fact, perhaps we'd made the wrong decision. He received that decision that he was not ready to be an elder with such grace uh, and responded by pursuing people and pastoring people more, such that it was not too long thereafter that we initiated another process. Uh, where we would verify for him for eldership a second time around. And we are now nearing the end of that process. Actually, today, I'm introducing him as a way of soliciting input from all of you. Morgan Gagne, I'm sure you know who I'm speaking of, will be bringing the word to us here this morning. Uh, But we would like to hear from the congregation if you have input As to the fitness of Morgan to serve in a pastoral role in this church and the role of elder in this church The other elders, Wes and myself, would very much like to hear of that Whether you believe him to be fit and want to communicate that to us Or if you have some reservation or concern that you'd like us to think about or work through with you or with him beforehand We'd like to hear of that as well So today I'm introducing him to you and then he's going to preach in front of you, uh, and maybe he will take issue with something he says in his sermon, and that will be the thing that winds up getting us back to this same point two years from today. Who knows? Uh, God's telling the story. Um, but there it is. For the next three weeks, actually, we'll have open input opportunity for you as members. So if you have something, some input for us, please bring that to us over the course of the next three weeks. And without further ado, let me introduce now my friend and brother, Morgan Gagne. <coughs>
0: Yikes. Oh, my goodness. Good morning. Uh, So, today, uh, we're nearing the end of a sermon series titled, Nearing the End, uh, Good News for All People, and for this series, the elders created a preaching cohort whose purpose was to add more voices to the pulpit with each of the preachers having been tasked with bringing forward the gospel with a certain gospel grammar or emphasis and then applying it to a particular people group or type of person. Before we review what those grammars are, let's think more basic and ask, what is the gospel? But before we go there, let's even get more basic and ask, who am I talking to? And today, I am talking to Christians. The title says, Christians Weary with the Church. I think in your bulletin, but that's an old title that I failed to update. Uh, We're going with straight up weary Christians. Any of them, wherever you are. Uh, So where does the good news of the gospel go once you've been a Christian for a while? Christ speaks peace and gives us the gift of faith, hope, and love. But no saint is free from the experience of their sin or their trouble. So with that, there is certainly an assumption in this that we know or I know what the gospel is. The gospel means good news, and what is that exactly? There seems to be three basic ideas in most of our Christian assumptions about what the gospel is. They are the person and work of Christ, the commands and teachings of Christ, and the nature and character of our salvation in Christ. The who, what, and how of the gospel, if you will. First, the who. By far, the person and work of Christ is the source and summit of all gospel truth. Not just as as an idea, but as a living Savior who sits in victorious accomplishment. From Hebrews, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is important, because as we begin to, collide, begin to collide with the Christ's commands and teachings and the experience and nature of our salvation in Christ, we must remember that from the salvation worked in the historical cross, in the historical Christ, we partake of the divine life. And the icon we have been given for the person and work of Christ is the cross. The cross is lifted up as ground zero in the reconciliation between God and man. Because what hung on the cross was the God-man. Sinful human nature was redeemed, the church was ransomed, a new humanity had begun, open and complete, for any sinner wanting a way out of sin and death. Second, the what. The commands and teachings of Christ force us to receive him as he is. Here Christ defines for himself who he is and what he wants from us. And in all of this, we are being told who he is and who we will be through his grace. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Or Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The person and the work of Christ and the teachings of Christ become entangled and inseparable. And finally, the nature and character of our salvation. Throughout the scriptures, but especially in the writings of the apostles, the infrastructure of grace through faith is given gospel equivalence. We are saved by grace through faith, not works. It is a free gift from beginning to end. To reject this is to reject Christ himself. In each of these three basic categories, Christ is insisting on himself as the way, the truth, and the life. Yet the huge difficulty in all of this is the proportions given to each of these categories. Anyone can overemphasize one category of the truth of Jesus to the harm of greater truth. For most of my own life, up until around the end of high school, I wouldn't have thought of the gospel as much more than the initial invitations or commands of Jesus especially the commands to believe in him and repent of your sin. Then it followed. To stay a Christian is that you now have to obey God's law. Or another way to say, I thought, the Christian life was no more than the call to trust Jesus by obeying his law. Which is not necessarily wrong. But when isolated from the ever-present crucified Christ, and when isolated from being told I'm saved by grace through faith, not works, Despair and fear felt like my only options. As I grew up, I watched the strength of my sin rapidly outpace the strength of my faith. So what do we mean by gospel grammar? Basically, a certain mode through which Christ confronted sinners and comforted sinners. For some, the gospel confronts everything that they stand for. And for some, the gospel comforts every wound. The grammar is often the point where the proclamation of Christ meets the human condition and offers the experience of Christ. So the three experiences we've been offering are the upside down, the inside out, and the already not yet. First, the upside down. The upside down is this world is absolutely opposed to the values of God's kingdom. All human power and self-worship are anti christ The nature of grace is subversive and uncontrollable. And what you mean for sin, God means for good. In this grace and in this kingdom, the weak are strong. The poor are rich. The sinners are righteous. The dead are raised. Second, the inside out. No one is righteous. No, not one. Without faith, it is impossible to know God. Yet no sinner's heart can move oneself to faith. We must be rescued from self and filled with the life of another. And third, the already not yet. Through faith, the church is held in mystical union with Jesus Christ, the God-man, our new humanity. His past, present, and future belong to us. We haven't exactly done an excellent job at keeping those grammars that we were tasked with at the forefront of any of the sermons, but eh, because when it comes down to it, each preacher has been a grammar unto himself, or a point of understanding. And when it comes down to it, every Christian, whether minister or layperson, has a grammar and is a grammar unto themselves. And what I mean by that is Christ is a marvel of condescension. His gospel can be reached and can be communicated in ways that completely ignore our grown-up rules of understanding. Infants, infants can nestle in it, children can run in it, it can chase and be chased. The whole mystery of Christ can be opened with little said, or nothing said. It follows us for the saving of our souls, and it follows us for the saving of the world. It has the feelings and wonderment of some mysterious energy that goes where it pleases. In many ways, the gospel is anything true about Jesus. And so these tiny fragments of knowledge within us open up to us the whole God-man, but this happens because the gospel is not simply a body of knowledge, but a saving, creating power, proceeding from the living and speaking Christ. So why do we need the gospel? We need the gospel because we need God. Let's briefly look at our first need for the gospel as human beings alienated from God. The human race was created for eternal relationship, for a eternal relationship of love, where our bodies and souls were finely tuned to know and love Christ. All of nature was created to participate in his divine energy, like flowers in the sun, to live and grow towards him. A place where being and doing, love, freedom, obedience, were sustained by divine relationship. Our family was given a choice, a choice of either self-forgetfulness or a lie called self-improvement or self-definement. We chose the latter, We chose the knowledge of good and evil over God and Christ, and our relationship with God was broken. Everything that was free and good in humankind turned inward. The knowledge of good and evil, or the law, was not an offer for life, but the terms of God's curse over our disobedience. This knowledge sits within us as a place of decay and poisons all that we do. We are tethered to a moral and physical decay, and to those cursed the gospel is offered. So what is offered? Is it God's aid in living in obedience to the knowledge of good and evil, or even returning to the time before our family walked away from him? (laughs) No. (laughs) The offer is Christ, to see and have him through his indwelling Holy Spirit, for he is perfect God for you and perfect man for you. The whole divine life of the Trinity is just beneath his flesh, and from his eternal and open wounds that were marked on him at the cross, salvation rolls down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And his salvation is love, forgiveness, obedience, and glory. To know him is to be known. So do you see him? Do you hear him? Come to him, all who are weary and burdened, and he will give you rest. Take his yoke upon you and learn from him, for he is gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So, okay, I did it. I believe. Or you did. We did, as Christians. We believe by the obedience of faith, yet weariness is here. So how do we get weary, and what makes us weary? We have millions upon millions of reasons to be weary with God. There are as many reasons to be as reasons as there are sins and hurts, because every sin is a decent reason to doubt the goodness of God. Every sin assaults what we know of God, and in all of them Satan is trying to say to us once more, did God did God really say? We get weary because it seems like God doesn't listen. We get weary because it seems like God is not keeping his word. The weariness of sin, the interior sin of our hearts, and the exterior sin of our world continue to be excessively violent, and the violent is outrageous. The violence received is out of our control, and someone else's slavery to sin, we become victims to their sin, we become wounded through their actions. The violence committed by our own hands throws us into utter confusion. Sin is sneaky, and when faith matures, sin gets sneakier. The shock of seeing your sin hurt someone else again is disheartening. Even more so when wisdom begins arriving in your frame, late 20s, early 30s, you realize that the nonsense you're pulling right now is the same nonsense you've been pulling your entire life. Uh, Sin is a fair and decent reason to mistrust the goodness of God and the salvation he has claimed to work in Christ. Second, the weariness of holiness. Doesn't the call to holiness feel like the biggest bait and switch of all time? There is there's a reason why we're miserable at taking the law out of sanctification. But even when we do, we sit there scratching our heads and asking if holiness is even real. It does not produce the feelings of true self being actualized, but sinful self being mortified. What we all hoped would be the victorious life of Jesus continues to be the crucified life of Jesus. Yet the desire for holiness remains stuck in our chest. And lastly, the weariness with the church. We are so often robbed of the intimacy of Christianity that we are called to. We are often ignored, betrayed, lied to. Our sin and the sin of others enter this weird religious bubble and can quickly become overwhelming and abusive I mean, maybe not our church, but isn't the worst thing about Christianity Christians? (laughs) But not us, of course. In many ways, a Christian is just as broken as everyone else. It's just that they have the presence of someone else. And all of this is some sort of feelings versus promise or our experience versus his accomplishment why do those who have accepted and believed his commands and promises still live under the effects of the curse? Why don't the promises feel better than they do? How do we make sense out of the chaos and the peace? God and his promises are a curious mix indeed. God's condescension to us seems only interested in being near to us and not overly concerned With giving in to any of our ideas about what salvation should be or look like or feel like, it's almost as if Christ lets all our sinful choices be our sinful choices and is letting the whole world under his wrath play out to the very end. And with the curse of God running us over in the street, he he, he tells our souls to be still and have no fear. With that, let's turn to the text. Why did I select the text that I did? The church is where all of this crashes together. Our faith, hope, and love crashing into all the sin that we can throw, in at, throw at him. And just like it is unacceptable to evaluate a Christian without the Christ, it is unacceptable to evaluate a Christian without the church. For We were made for each other, and God has hidden grace within us for each other. This is a funny sermon. I thought about saying this at the beginning or right at the end, but I'm going to say it right in the middle. For whatever teaching or explaining I do, the weary here in this room, if you are weary, you might stay weary. And tomorrow, I might get weary. And if not tomorrow, definitely sometime soon. And unfortunately, there's no way to stop it. Clarity does not stop weariness. Clarity is Christ's awareness in the weariness. So, Romans 15. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Each of us should, build, should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. Strong and weak in what? Strong and weak in faith. The disorienting nature of Christian experience and Christ's accomplishments is no reason to minimize the living miracle that is a Christian person. Christians, you are a miracle, and you are surrounded by miracles, yet with each of us appointed to a certain measure of faith. So like the individual experience of sin and grace, the weariness and confusion that comes and goes, this gets multiplied in community. But in the same way that Christ is a marvel of condescension, we are invited to receive each other in lowliness and self-forgetfulness. Not as perfect representatives of the all-gospel truth and grace, that is the living Christ, but as fragments connected to the whole Christ whose flesh and blood reigns over us. So who can be strong? Who can be weak? There's not much more to say than each of us saying I can be your weakness and I can be your strength and you can be my weakness and you can be my strength. What what sort of kingdom is this? What kingdom says on the contrary, the parts of the body, meaning the church, that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Or from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That last line captures so perfectly the tensions that I've been describing because the old has not passed away. (laughs) With what eyes, from what perspective, is God saying this to us? Verse 3, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. The place God is saying this to us is Christ and him crucified. There, our perfect substitute At the climax of all of us sinners becoming his sin and his righteousness becoming our righteousness, the cross of Christ simultaneously becomes an annihilation of self and a recapitulation of self, both our end and our beginning. The life of faith is a perplexing mix of the death of Jesus and the eternal life of Jesus as the energy and quality of our faith. Our Redeemer is our death and our life. A life of both sorrow and comfort, suffering and healing, mingled together in union with him. The gospel life is a life of Christ repetition, not as earning our own way, but as being freely given his way and being his ambassadors to the world, which all of that is an exciting way to say that we are stuck. To whom shall we go? He has the words of eternal life. Verse 4, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. You, you are not alone. None of this is new. The people of God, sinners saved by grace, have been in this faith since the beginning, connected to his spirit, and by his spirit he grants us faith. Faith is designed to look and feel like Christ. The neediness of our faith is sustained in Christ's completeness before us and ahead of us. And lastly, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. So who is Christ for us? Christ for sin, Christ is forgiveness and presence. I speak as plainly as I possibly can. Your heart in this life will never cease to produce sin. The thorns of our sin and pain will not end in this life. But Christ is with us, and he is for us, and he is in us. If God never heals you the way that you want in this life, will you still trust him? Second, Christ for holiness. Christian, your sanctification is by faith, not works. Don't put the solution to the problem back in where the problem we're trying to solve, the curse of the law. The life of faith is a life with Jesus through the Holy Spirit not a life of using the Holy Spirit to get to Jesus. Faith has opened our eyes to the blazing love of God coming from the cross, so do not look to yourself. Faith and repentance are an emptying of self, a daily letting go, a satisfaction in another, life at the cross and from the cross. In repentance, we confess to God that we cannot do it by faith, we toss ourselves on the love and mercy of Christ and believe that he has done it. Our sanctification begins <clears throat> not with an obedience unto holiness, but with Christ who is better. The righteous are not invited to this dance. Only undone sinners in need of a finished work are embraced by a Savior and led into this life of love. How quickly our addiction to the knowledge of good and evil renounces the cross of Christ fabricates its own Christ, and calls it sanctification. We always build crosses made of conditional love, conditional promises, and most despicable, a sin that has not yet been defeated by Christ for his people. As saints, we proceed from fullness to fullness, not lack, since through faith we are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So live before Jesus. Do not recoil from desperation. Holiness is love. And holiness is for others. And lastly, Christ for the church. Who is interested in this bickering, set free, but shame-ridden family? Christ is. The harsh reality is that we do not pick our family, and we do not have control. The divine life of grace is a life spiraling from here to there, within the heart of Jesus Christ. What what control can we maintain in the magnitude of such a gift? So, to those of you who are feeling taxed and burdened by other Christians, cling to the Christ you have seen in them. Look for him and expect him in them. Regard no one according to the flesh. By sight, the church exists in a state of injustice, (laughs) but by faith, Christ is here, and he's throwing out promises like it's a parade. Everything about us exists exists in what could only be called an unfair amount of mercy. The love that we have known and the love that continues to rain down upon us. Hang on to the rest of Christ's death to gain the strength to love his people. In strength or weakness, look at each other in awe. Pray for the grace to sit with sinners, just like you. But more importantly, sinners not like you. For as much as Christ is the God-man, the church is the God-man. And you, you, you Christian laypersons are the most blessed persons in all of the world. Nothing can take the gospel away from you. So lay down your fear and lay down your worry. All of this pain and sin is to be expected, and Christ is using this pain and sin to open you up to a higher way of love. Feel the privilege of knowing the love of God in Christ, and when you are ready, sit in joyful adoration of our Savior. Let fear pause for a moment and take God at his word. He has done it. Christ is steady. The cross is steady. The gospel is steady. In closing, back to the verses from Hebrews that we read at the beginning. Christ will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Those, meaning we Christians, so we wait. And also, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet, so Christ waits too. <laughs> what what more can be said? We are waiting, and Christ is waiting, and looking forward to the day when we will be together forever. Let us pray, oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the life of your Son that has swept us up and has brought us together here. Lead us, God, guide us. Work your life, your death into us that we might love each other, that we might see each other,
1: and that we invite all to know you. In your precious and holy name, amen.